Hello, and welcome to Thrive, a podcast that gives you strategies and inspiration to help you live your best life. Learn from us, two cancer survivors, as we show you how we don't just survive, but thrive. We are so happy to invite you to join our free online October boot camp for any cancer survivor. The Crush Cancer Self Care Boot Camp will be from October 1st through 14 online in our free private Facebook group. Check out the link below, but you'll get downloads, FaceTimes, emails, FaceTime lives, and it'll be a great opportunity for you to learn some great self care. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, I am Garth Callahan, the original Napkin Notes dad. I am a seven-time cancer thriver, freshly back from gamma knife brain surgery just a week ago today. More importantly, I have been writing notes and sticking them into my daughter's lunch ever since kindergarten. I'm Dara Kurtz. I am the author of Crush Cancer, the book I needed when I heard those terrifying words, you have cancer, available on Amazon, and the creator of crazyperfectlife.com. Welcome to our show. We have an awesome guest here today. I am so incredibly happy to introduce Matthew Zachary. He is the founder and CEO of Stupid Cancer. He is a concert pianist, cancer survivor, disruptor of things, Newsweek cover model. I I could go on and on and on. And let me tell you, not only have I not been on the cover of Newsweek, I haven't even been on like the back page. This is a guy who is, um, I'm actually... um, He's done it all. He's He's done done it all. I've been a fan for a really long time. This is our first time chatting. Matthew doesn't even know me from Adam, but I'm I'm opening up my wallet here. I've got this really super thin wallet and uh, we can all see each other. And so in my wallet, I have a couple of debit cards, my healthcare cards, obviously my prescription cards, my driver's license, business card to my doctor and my cancer card, which I got from stupidcancer.org. Uh, and I'm very this. excited to show you that. I'm excited. I actually bought a 10 pack of these and I give them away to everybody that I can. Well, we are so glad to have you here. Thank you for making time to talk to us. Oh, I, this is my honor. Thank you so much. I think our listeners would be really excited to kind of hear about your experience. I hate the word journey. We still haven't come up with a better thing for cancer yeah. journey, right? You know, you, you found a stupid cancer over 10 years ago. So what we'd like to start out with, you know, kind of where did you go from that inception and what are the biggest success stories that you've seen in the past decade because of stupid cancer? Well, very similar to your book, you know, what I wished I had I started the organization for the same reason, because it's what I wished I had. When I was diagnosed, I was 21 in college with terminal brain cancer. So this was the 90s, so I kind of, there's a little forgiveness for it being the 90s and all that stuff, because we've come so far, and who knew we'd be here, you know, 22 years later with what we're going to talk about on the show right now. But it, it all began when I met my first peer, and it took me seven years to not feel alone, because you don't know what you don't know, and I met this guy, Craig, and he blew my mind that there are other people that aren't 80 with cancer like me and I was like oh you know so I was a concert pianist I was going to grad school I lost the ability to play from the brain tumor and I wound up having to pick a different career after lying on the couch miserable and depressed for several months my dad said if you're gonna die die employed so kind of got a job and I worked my way up the ladder in the agency life and advertising and marketing and I was like an IT tech guy and I learned all the weird stuff like Photoshop and Illustrator and whatever and I I know how to build brands so when I met this guy Craig and he pulled this like 
Wizard of Oz curtain back to reveal 30 other Craigs. And I was like, where have you been in my whole life? I realized that there was such an unmet need to give Generation X a voice and a face and a name and a presence and a soul in cancer advocacy or whatever it was. And that was where I found real purpose is, is what I wish that I had was a group of people like me who understood being impotent at 21 from cancer and you can't talk to a girl or I can't get my job back or my best friends left me because they couldn't deal with my having this stuff. Nodding head kind of things when you're in our little bubble. It was just born to exist as something I wished I had. It was immediately resonant. And interestingly enough, similar to like this type of, of platform that you guys are producing, I was offered the chance to have what was then a pioneering show on what's called a live blog cast. They don't use those words anymore. But I had the very first live blog cast for cancer. And this was before YouTube and before Google and before Facebook and before Twitter in 2007. The iPhone didn't exist yet. It was like, really think back how far we've come in just 11 years. And it was called The Stupid Cancer Show. And there you go. You know, it's still here. <laughs> We're now on YouTube. But I got a chance to leverage my, what I, what the conversation should have been with me and with our peers. And I booked 52 shows in two weeks because there was such a hunger for this little Margaret Mead upstart group of rapscallions that just wanted to be heard to have that amplification, that boom, that megaphone. So the Stupid Cancer Show really was the initial thing that was happening that elevated everything. And within a couple of weeks, the website I built and the show, we were on television and in Time Magazine and the New York Times. And I got this award, like this crazy stuff was going on because it was just so accidentally successful. And so needed. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the origin yeah. story of where this all came from. But I just go back to, you know, you wrote this book you wish you had. That's all it really was. It was purposeful. So when I look at the numbers and you really focus on people from ages 15 to 39, yes. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each year. And that's a crazy number because that number isn't decreasing Correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's increasing. Well, the good news is that it's increasing based on population, not because of incidents. But where, if you really want to run the numbers, some of the cancers that are more treatable are now being usurped by actual new diagnoses in other diseases. So the blood cancers are much more survivable, but there's an uptick in lung and colon cancer in young adults now, which is genetic and environmental and a little bit of bad luck. Sure. And there are no drugs for that community because the drugs for the old communities do not work when your biology is different at this stage of life. You know, and you look, again, if you run the numbers, there's like one and a half million new diagnoses every year and 6% are under 40. That includes kids, you know, babies and whatnot. So we're dropping the bucket of self-interest in industry to get research and funding and standards of care. You had asked me, what I would consider a success story. And it really has nothing to do with stupid cancer per se. It has to do with the influence of our community and our advocacy work uh, with our partners, whether it's a pharma company, a consumer brand, other patient advocate groups, the NCI, the CDC, groups like ASCO, which is the Association 
the, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, 40,000 doctors. Today, compared to 10 years ago, and I just wrote an article about this, we have all the things we wished we had had 10 years ago. And I just go back to something really simple. Young adult cancer were not three words that went together. Those were not consecutive terms in any allegory 11 years ago. There was no data, no research, no billing codes, no best practices, standards of care, guidelines. Nothing existed, and now everything exists. So 10 years of screaming and yelling have yielded the fundamental infrastructure to truly identify and accelerate improving outcomes for this disparity group. So and where do you see 10 years from now? What would be your dream? Obviously, it would be to not even have cancer. Well. And do you think we'll ever get to that point? Do you think that cancer will ever just be something of the past? There was a really funny episode of Futurama where they were, you know, the Canadian character Fry was frozen for a thousand years and he wakes up in the year 3000 and he talks about whatever happened to cancer. And he's like, the press is like, oh, that's gone. We now have super cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so always going to be something yeah. To, yeah, to, yeah. to destroy our humanity from a disease perspective. From an optimistic perspective, we look at how there haven't been new drugs on the market for 40 years, and yet last year there were 72 new drugs. It wow. was, it was, you know, there were like four or three approved in the last five years, and now there's 72 new drugs. And we talk about immuno-oncology nonstop. It's not really a layperson kind of word. It's, an, it's a geek word. But basically, it tries to help your body become wolverine and use your own natural immune system to fend off the cancer. It doesn't work for everyone. It's very genetic. It's very unique. They're still trying to find the needles in the haystack to prove the models and get the trials up to speed. But in 10 years, immuno-oncology will be the standard of care. I'm not saying you're going to get, oh, I got cancer, Star Trek, it's gone. But we're not here about cure anymore. We're here about creating long-term survivors and not defining what your life's endpoint is, but giving you the chance to rehabilitate, live on your terms as long as that's going to be. It's love that. I love very, that. very hard to get that through to the yeah. public because they're still cure, cure, cure. Um, that's me. I, it's amazing. Yeah changing. Yeah. And I love everything that you just said. And, and Garth is raising his hand and saying, that's me because in Garth, we recently talked about this, how you had to maybe kind of rethink what success looks like for you, because in your mind, initially success was 100% cancer free. And now it's okay. Living a beautiful life with cancer in your body. Right. Um, I, I actually just started immunotherapy two months ago. You know, I asked my doctors that question, which they fear. He said, it, it, this works in about 30% of the cases. And of, of those people that it works in, they generally get treatment for two years. And then they have this long-term survival with no progression, right? So the cancer stays in your body, but it doesn't continue to grow. It doesn't continue to spread. And so I looked at him and I said, well, what makes the 30% the 30%? And he just, he shook his head. He said, we don't know. It's, it's too early. We have no idea. If you'd like to participate in a study, we will track your vitals. We will track your blood work. We will track all of everything that you can donate um, so that we can try to figure out what makes the, those 30% the 30%. You know, I look at this as a grand experiment at this point. In a couple of months, we'll know if I'm in the 30%. But it is truly an experiment. We, we have no idea if it's going to work or not. We really hope that it will. But 
gosh, what was it, Dara, four years ago, five years ago now? I can't even remember. You know, my doctors looked me in the eye and said, you're going to die from this. The median lifespan for a metastatic kidney cancer patient, one year, 16 months with good treatment. And I thought, 16 months? How is that successful? Yeah. And that's, Matt, you talk about, you talk to people every single day that were told six months to live, three months to live, one month, and look at the beautiful the beautiful lives that they're living today. They weren't the statistics. I look at this from a very different lens. It often makes people uncomfortable when they're not cancer survivors themselves, which is that we need to stop using the word cure. Um, unfortunately, it raises a lot of money. So people are going to keep exploiting the word cure for their benefit and convincing the public that there's some magic pill hiding in some drug companies safe in, a, in you know, in some organ. It's not there. It doesn't exist. It's not. There's no conspiracy theory around that. And what was it? Sometimes the greatest conspiracy is that there isn't any. <laughs> I love that you said that because, yeah, people always say that. They right. say, I feel like there's some... The, the cure, nobody's sharing it, blah, blah, blah. I get an yeah. email a week, at least one a week crazy. from somebody who, who really has a good heart, I'm sure. Yeah. And admittedly, let's say 10% of those are, you know, a little wacko, but <laughs> everybody else, they, they, they're coming from a really genuine spot to say, Garth, I know that there's a cure and a safe somewhere for you. <laughs> and, and, and I go back to Matthew, I, I, um, you know, I've been writing notes to my daughter forever. She just started college last week. And there have been a handful of times that my daughter has written me a note. And one of them she wrote to me over the summer. And I actually keep it on my desk because it reminds me of what success looks like and what it, what I need to start every day with. And the note's so simple. She's a softball player. So she gets win-tie loss. And her note is, dear dad, a tie counts as a win. And I have to live that every day and, because I know that there's not a safe out there. Right. I mean, that's not to take away the data coming out of Israel and Western Europe around cannabis and, and other genetic molecular treatments out there. We can argue, you know, why this country is a little backwards in its appreciation of that true academic peer-reviewed data. I know that there are attempts in this country to legitimize medicinal cannabis as therapy and not basically, you know, palliative. But, you know, with all the states now flipping, you know, weed is the new DOMA. So all these states are now going, I mean, it's on the ballot in Idaho this year. Like, Idaho is voting for recreational marijuana <laughs> this year. Like, of all the things that you'd never think you'd see, you know, federal is just a few years away. And it's just, it's going to trip and it'll open up more research to validate and uh, collaborate with all the other organizations and countries that are doing that research. I truly believe that there is evidence that having cannabis as an alternative and complementary, not a substitute for, can reduce stress anxiety. There is data around PTSD in the military, even though it's not cancer. So that to me is something that's gonna become a real power play in the next couple of years. And it's gonna help offset the burden of what we call comorbidities, which is just the crap that happens because you have it. And if you can start to produce that, quality of life goes up regardless of longevity and will increase what life means. And living with cancer is also, those are three words that have never gone together in the public discourse. So that's what we have to start accepting culturally. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I was listening to something that you said recently 
and it was about how your uncle, it was talking about how you were this beautiful pianist and your uncle basically said, you can do this other protocol and it might give you a 5% advantage, but it probably will really cause a lot of neuropathy in your hands and you definitely won't be able to play or you can not do it and then enjoy the rest of your life trying to rehabilitate yourself. And it was basically just focusing on having a choice and giving you the patient who is living in this space that you don't want to be in because nobody wants to be in this space. And I imagine you were this college student. You were probably this pretty cool college student living your life. And then, boom, you probably found yourself in this space that was the last place you wanted to be. And I I just loved how your uncle kind of broke it down into, you know what, you actually have a choice. And, you know, we talk a lot about that every day because you can be going through all of this shit and- Oh, we can curse on the show. Oh, we can curse. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh yeah, let me tell (laughs) you. Nothing made, you know, I never used to cuss before I had cancer, but somehow, hearing the words you have cancer, like the gates of the four letter words opened. (laughs) And at the time, my kids were 11 and 14. And I literally had to remind them that, you know, you can't use these words at school, but now they're older. And yeah, so you can you can curse here. But talk a little bit about that, just about owning your choice and the empowerment that can come with that. Well, choice is now more relevant than ever, because you know, choice can mean what drug you go on, but now there's more drugs, so you have to have a choice. I'll just go back to that quick story. So I was a concert pianist. I lost the use of my left hand, and I finished uh, a massive craniotomy, 33 days of like Chernobyl or Fukushima-level radiation. I was literally dying, and they wanted to give me a year of chemotherapy, and I asked them pretty much, like, am I going to die? Is that better? We don't know what that, what that word meant. I just happened to have an uncle who knew something that I would never have known. So when the doctors were all up about, you need to do this, you need to do this, I didn't know that I had a choice. What that meant was that if I took this chemotherapy, it would have rendered my fingers with permanent neuropathy, and I would never have the potential to rehabilitate if I ever were to play piano again, which was all I cared about at 21. The doctors never considered me as a human being that this should be something I should be informed consent. So my uncle, again, who I just happened to be lucky to have in my life, said you'd rather die in five years without neuropathy than live for five years and six months or 75 years with neuropathy. You know, piano is what's important to you. Make a choice that's important to you. So now we advance 22 years later, those conversations are happening at certain levels now, but we're now looking at issues that are almost irrelevant to the drugs we're talking about, especially in our space, fertility rights, family planning rights, chemo can make you infertile. And unless you have a conversation, men or women around, will this decision make me infertile? Is motherhood, which I'm probably not even thinking about right now, relevant to where I'd like to see my life go? And what is my constitutional right to choice? in that narrative that is or isn't happening most of the time. Same thing goes for genetic testing, immunology, 
why should I go on this trial when this test seems to be something I should be willing to do? What's the agenda of the clinic? Where are the interests in the community cancer center? It doesn't matter whether you can afford it or not. You have the right to know your choices. So freedom of choice, I believe, is also a narrative in the next 10 years of cancer care. And I think it's so important because in a time where you feel like you actually have no power, I mean, when you get diagnosed with cancer, your whole entire life changes literally with the flip of a switch. And you feel like you're sitting in this space and you have no power, control over so many things to recognize that, you know what? Yeah, you actually have some choices. I think that's an incredibly empowering thing. Well, when do you get to know about those choices? Not everyone has an uncle. Who's the uncle? Yeah, right. The uncle is in the internet and the uncle may not be your hospital. I'm kind of curious when your parent, were your parents supportive of that? Because that could be a pretty hard thing for a parent to think, okay, I kind of want my kid to do what gives them the best percentage or the best odds in terms of longevity. So was that a family discussion or were they kind of like, you know what, do what works for you? You know, my dad was about my age when I was diagnosed. I had eight-year-olds. I got married late. Yes, and I want to talk about that. But my parents said, whatever you choose, we will support. The flip side of that, though, is when you're a minor, especially when you're like a younger teenager, all your parents want is to save my kid's life. Right. The last thing on your mind as a 30-something parent with a 10-year-old kid with leukemia is grandparenthood. Right, right. But choice is still relevant in that conversation. Disclosure is relevant in that conversation. So everyone in my life that mattered to me biologically, spiritually, cognitively was supportive of my decision to not do chemotherapy and take that risk. Wonderful. I want to um, lighten up the conversation a little bit. But before I do that, I do want to thank the Art of Living Retreat Center. They have invited Dara and me to come on November 2nd through 4th to give the Thrive Workshop Weekend Retreat. We're so excited to have this. You can go to napkinnotesdad.com slash retreat and learn all about it. Uh, Signups are limited. So uh, we are actually purposefully limiting the number of people that can come in so that we can give everybody individualized attention. Uh, If you have any questions, contact Dara or myself, and we will be more than happy to help facilitate a conversation there. So lightening up the conversation a little bit, I was really excited to watch your CancerCon video. Now, I'm a big geek. Uh, I love math and science and sci-fi. So when I think of a con, I generally think of people dressing up, myself included, uh, waving their lightsabers around or something like that. And Dara and I just did, we recorded an episode that centered on personal soundtracks and how that came about from my experience with walk-on music. Mm-hmm. And your walk-on music is The Piano Man by Billy Joel. And I wanted to it's know... It's one of my favorite songs. I just <clears throat> like to know. Um, yeah, that's actually... That was one of my first LPs that I bought way back when. I was thinking about this and, and knowing a little bit about your history. Is that your song of choice? How do you feel? like When I hear walk-up music when I'm getting on stage, I generally get a chill down my body. And I'm really excited to get that music in my soul and, and help help that music fuel my talk. So I, I kind of want to hear about, you know, how you prepare and, and was that shut up. Yeah, was it intentional? Yeah, that is that is my anthem. It will always be my anthem. It, it. It, I don't like to say I'm defined or labeled by anything, but I have always been a pianist. I mean, I started at age 11, a little late, but I have found that it is the closest I come to having like a connection to my spirit or my soul. And 
uh, it's I love that. And there's really, I mean, outside of my children and my family, it's it's different, you know. But like to have something, if I'm alone in a room or on a stage and there's a piano there, I can just spend three hours doing nothing but forgetting that the universe exists. Nothing else really does that for me. So whether I'm giving concerts, which I don't really do as much, but I'd like to do a little more, or whether I'm listening to music that I wrote in college that I wished had been published or the soundtrack to this movie, it will always be a part of me. So I love that you you recognize walk-on music as a value. I think having like just canned crap when you get up there and leaving it up to the, the AV people is a waste of time. Every single speaker that's ever presented at CancerCon or any of our events gets custom walk-on music. And we always ask them, what do they want to be on stage walking on to? We love that. And we kind of talked a lot yesterday when we taped our show about music, but there's power in music and the way you feel and every mood. We all have different songs or music that we listen to when we are in a particular space or we want to feel a certain way. So we love that you do that. I, I actually, just listening to you share your belief on that, I got that chill down my body yeah. as if I were walking on stage. Yes. That's how transformative I mean, that that story is. Well, I, I, when I, I used to talk, when, before Stupid Cancer existed, my most of, if I did get to talk or address a crowd, my, my three big takeaways were to just try, and these are not easy for everybody, you know, be authentic, stay connected to things that I mean, meaning in your life, and try to find purpose in crap <laughs> um, and and the for me it's like find your anchor so I had no what do I say I said I died but I didn't lose my life in my 20s I lost my 20s I had no you know I, I actually think that the way you just said that is really I love that because you did you lost your 20s you didn't have the 20s that you probably always imagined you would have yeah it, it wasn't nearly as much fun as my friends 20s yeah yeah. But I was able to rehabilitate myself and play piano again within three years. But I took the piano from my parents' house to my first apartment, which my mom was terrified of me leaving the house. But I moved to Hoboken and I, I just played piano. I, my right hand was fine. It never was affected, but it was the left hand that had all the sort of the fine motor deficits. But I was able to do enough where I was, I went out to LA to my friend who did go to film school and start recording. And he let me sit down in his studio for about six hours and lay down like 55 tracks of original music that I wrote in my head largely, because I'm also a lefty, so I couldn't even write the music down. And I produced or self-produced back when you could do that, two albums, which in 99 and 2000 sort of were the next to holding my children in my arms like I felt I gave birth to my future by having albums when they said you'd never play again mm. I didn't really sell them they weren't really for commercial I just needed to but so music was the anchor it was all I had I had nothing else I had no Craig I had no peers I had no support but I had my music and I'm glad I had I'm grateful I had it when I say find your anchor not everyone has an anchor but if you do happen to have one or can find one, it really is a center. You know, it's like, uh, what's that thing? The cantilever. You know, it, it kind of balances things out. You know, I um, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I was 42. So I was a little bit out of that age range that stupid cancer focuses on. However, I can say that I, I genuinely felt alone 
because with being diagnosed with kidney cancer, the average age of kidney cancer diagnosis is 65. Yeah. And, and a year after that diagnosis, I was also diagnosed with prostate cancer. Again, average age of diagnosis, yeah. 65. And I'm like, what, what in the hell is going on with my body? <laughs> I'm only 42, 43. I am too young for this. And, and I'm still, there's a part of me that's actually really bitter about that. You know, how, you know, why me at that age, there's an organization called Patients Like Me. Yes. And um, I, I actually know a couple of the folks that work there. And they said, oh, Garth, you know, go to Patients Like Me, find somebody and, you know, find, find a peer and talk to them. And so I signed in, put in all of my particulars, you know, kidney cancer, 42, prostate cancer, 43, and I got a big old zero. Yep. There are no patients like you. And how did that make you feel? I, I felt more isolated yeah. than ever. It made you worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Didn't help. Um, and and uh, so I actually, I downloaded the stupid cancer app and typed in my particulars. And I was shocked, actually, at how many profiles were there of people younger than me with kidney cancer. I mean, I, I was genuinely shocked because I hadn't really seen that experience. And it goes to show that number one, we're diagnosing better, but number two, we're clearly people who are, are needing that social connection, who are needing those peers to help bounce ideas off of or guidance. I mean, that's, again, that's how our podcast started. Dara and I just started talking and I know that Dara has just, she's kind of taken me under her wing in terms of, you know, Garth, Garth, Garth has this ongoing cancer thing going. And I know he needs to talk to somebody who's not his wife. I'm going to let him vent for 30 minutes every week. And, and I'll try to get him in up from the ledge. I hear and feel the isolation that people experience when they're diagnosed. That's one of the reasons why I'm so public with everything. I haven't live streamed a prostate biopsy or anything like that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm up for that, but I tell people about it and I'm, I'm very open and, and honest and brutally so sometimes about what's going on because I want them, even if they don't know me or don't have any contact with me at all, but I want them to understand that there are other people out there going through similar situations. And I think that's one of the great things that that stupid cancer does. Which goes to, you know, I, we talked before about how you enter a world that you didn't ask to. You know, when you go to buy a car or a fridge, you can do all the research you want and you can find all the toaster reviews on Amazon you want. And, and that all exists and it's fantastic and social digital has created that. But there really is no marketplace for cancer where consumers, you know, who happen to be patients can just know what other consumers have chosen to do, which, you know, we talked about how the internet can be of no help when sometimes your doctor in the clinic and you don't know that if you're not an advocate, a lot of people just aren't inherently self advocates. And that's probably the majority of people that aren't. Yeah, that. I think that's true. And, and how you give them some kind of consumer tool that eliminates, you know, here and here, that to me is this peer support at scale is we are going to be the drivers of our own decisions, not to make the internet and the clinic irrelevant, but to augment our ability to know what our choices are. And, and you know, what's interesting is as much as we've improved lately, I can, I can tell you, I, I just had an MRI. I still have no idea how much it's going to cost, mm -hmm. right? I asked the facility up front, how much is this going to cost? And they didn't they know. They have no idea, yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, they have to wait until all everything comes together and then they can say, oh, here's your copay. It's $40 or it's $4,000. We, we don't know yet. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. I want to talk about your daughters. So you have twin girls, right? I have a twin girl, but one has a penis. Oh, okay. Okay, good. So you have twins. I have a boy and a girl. <laughs> a boy and a girl. Okay. And they're eight, right? They just turned eight. They just Aww. turned third grade. That's amazing. Yes. You were told you weren't going to have kids. So when apparently when you are young at NYU in the 90s, they bank your sperm. You, you have to pay for it, but it is just, it's easy. And I say easy with love because my mom drove me to the sperm bank. <laughs> and they were like, there was no Pornhub back then. And you're <coughs> disgusting old magazines. Nothing works. And you're dying. The last thing you can do is get it up when you're dying. So, oh my no, gosh, I'm not that, comparing apples to apples, but that yeah. has got to be like the most embarrassing. Oh like, yeah. Hey mom, let's. Uh... Yeah. So, but you know, again, fatherhood was the last thing on my mind. Grandparenthood was the last thing on my parents' mind. But I was like, you should go do this. Sure, it costs you like an arm and a leg and a, a HELOC just to get it done. But you know, there's a home equity line of credit. But. But, you know, I have them frozen and it cost me two to three thousand dollars a year to keep them frozen because insurance doesn't cover that. There are no co-basis programs for that. And between 1996 and 2009, you know, do that math, add that up, plus the cost of in vitro fertilization, which thankfully we all had one round. We got very lucky. Wow, that's amazing. Now, it cost me, you know, a small Lexus to have children. And as much as I was blessed and privileged to have that available capital on hand, that is not the case for most people. And you shouldn't have to buy parenthood because cancer got in the way of that. So that is currently an unsolvable problem, which I think really does, you know, whether you're 42 or 45, if you're in your fertile years when you get diagnosed, this applies to you. Right to parenthood is in the Constitution under under um, pursuit of happiness. So if you are not told about your reproductive rights and put in a position where you cannot afford family planning, that's constitutionally against your liberties. So how do we solve that problem? And honestly, consumers are solving that problem. Many states are now flipping based on angry young adults fighting for policy change. So Illinois, Connecticut, Virginia, California all now have state mandates that the state insurance funds cover reproductive costs soup to nuts. Doesn't necessarily change whether the doctor's having the conversation with you, but it's free to be a mom or a dad with after cancer now in those states. And more and more states are flipping. It's not a federal thing, it's a state thing. It's, it's not a payer thing. But consumers have driven that change. Consumers are now having patient education workshops with doctors, not ASCO, not research groups. We are the ones explaining to the doctors, mostly the younger doctors that are the age. Doctors in their fertile years understand the fertile conversation when they're in cancer. So that's us. We're doing that. We are creating that change, which is going back to consumers will become the most powerful catalyst of what an outcome looks like in the next 10 years. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I was. I, uh, I, last week I had the privilege of meeting somebody who had successfully gone through treatment for childhood leukemia. She's now in her mid thirties and about five years ago, one of her doctors came to her and said, Hey, you know, just, just so you understand, 
what the landscape looks like, we are starting to notice that kids who went through treatment as teenagers are actually having fertility problems. No, mm -hmm. Not that they were infertile, but they were, they're having problems right. conceiving. Um, and it might be a good idea for you to explore freezing eggs. She works for a nonprofit. She doesn't have a, a great salary. She has pretty okay healthcare, but her healthcare doesn't cover that. She had to go th through some very serious soul searching as to what that meant for her future because there wasn't anything that was wrong with her today. Right. Uh, but there was definitely data that showed that there might be something down the road where she had to really consider and make some choices. And to be honest, I sat there listening to her story and, and I thought, you know, crap, I, w I would have never thought about that. And oh, by the way, again, how do you have that type of conversation right. when you're 17? You know, how do you have that conversation with your dad? Yeah, exactly. Well, how do you have that conversation with your boyfriend? I can never be a mom to you. You know, I can never give you children. Like this is, I mean, again, these are good problems to have because it means you're alive. So we're now in the wake of progress. You know, these kids that would, should have died 20 years ago have lived to have these problems. But now what moral, ethical, longitudinal philosophy should we have as American citizens to guarantee parenthood, guarantee rehabilitation, and guarantee that, yes, you didn't ask to go through this, but you deserve to be a productive citizen that contributes to this country. One of the things that I took away from your CancerCon talk was never tell anyone you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I like to do during our podcast is I talk about a note that I've written to Emma um, sometime over the course of the last 13 years, even though she's in college, I still write notes to her. It's just a little bit more problematic. And, you know, I don't see her every day like I did, you know, just two weeks ago, actually. Yeah. And so this note is one of one of the things that Matthew said at CancerCon was never tell anyone you can't do something. And I, I love the sentiment behind that because I think a lot of cancer patients, we get told all of the time, what we shouldn't do or what we can't do. And I wrote this note to Emma two years ago, and I felt that it really summed up what was trying to be said there, which is, dear Emma, if someone says it's impossible, remember that it's impossible for them, not for you. Mm, I love that. Beautiful. I, I have a great quote from a friend of mine whose father passed away, but his father said that the difficult we do immediately, but the impossible takes a little longer. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And we should remind ourselves of that because often we want immediate gratification. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of a three letter word yet. Yeah. You mm -hmm. do always right? say that. You, you do. do always say, right. right. We yeah. haven't done that yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not possible that. yet. Yet. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I want to talk just for a second about a term that we use a lot, which is scanxiety, which uh -huh. is, you know, Garth, Garth is someone that does regularly, unfortunately, get scans. And there's a lot of anxiety associated with that. And for all of our listeners, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you've personally dealt with that? Or is there anything like, do you have a routine that you do? And I don't even know how often you go and get meet with your doctor. I'm, I'm assuming maybe once a year. So talk a little bit about that. And if there's something that you, like a magic, magic trick <laughs> that you found that that works for you that could help someone i'm i'm in a good position 22 years later where i don't even go anymore okay um, 
I get yelled at for not going every five years, but my oncologist did tell me you're going to dive something else. So I'll take and that. that it's so awesome. I mean, yay. That's beautiful. But, but believe me, I mean, I guess all I can tell people out there going through this is it gets better. But yes, I mean, honestly, my scanxiety isn't scanxiety. It's like if I get a headache in the book. So I still have like brain damage back here where the scar was and they didn't really put the bones back the right way. And I'm always reminded that it was there. And that's fine. This is my life now, whatever. But, you know, every now and then I pull a muscle like a normal person pulls a muscle. Right. But it just feels like that shouldn't be there. And I'm like, yeah. damn it. You know, or I don't really have a lump in my testicle. I just felt it wrong. Or, you know, I have this thing in the back of my neck, but I'm getting older. Like, just normal things that can be a trigger for anything right now. And you can feel the fear and what's the first step into the pain kind of thing. But if you're three months and then six months and then nine months, it's, you know, make the most of the time you have on this earth and optimize yourself to be there for other people and yourself. So th those are nice platitudes, like Tony Robbins kind of crap to say. <laughs> but in the real world, if FedEx doesn't deliver your package on time and you get pissed, that's life and you're back to normal. Yeah, I, I think what you just said, it's so true because I'm almost five years. I had breast cancer. It's been almost five years. But if I get like a pain or something, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just kind of like, hmm, what is that? Why yeah. do I have that? I, or, I always joke about hangnail cancer, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, oh, um, Lisa, I don't want to alarm you, but I have a hangnail. It could be cancer. Yeah, yeah. it's like a level of hyper, being a hypochondriacness that it's always going to be there. Right. And I mean, I always just say to people, make sure that you have a great relationship with your doctor. I mean, my doctor, her name is Heather. We are on a beautiful first name basis because she she's my person and she understands that I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of a hypochondriac because we understand that shit can happen. And once you go through that, it's hard for your mind to not go there. Oh yeah, I'm getting older. It's probably just, you know, a pulled muscle yeah. or is it, God forbid, something else. We were at uh, obedience school uh, a couple of nights ago. And just because of the events of the past couple of weeks, we haven't done a lot of training with our dog. And as we walked in, I was genuinely a little tired and I started to get a headache. And I told Lisa that I would appreciate if she were the one working with, with Charlie that evening. And I said, I don't want to alarm you, but I have a headache. And, you know, we, I just went through the surgery and they're like, ah, you know, if you have a headache that lasts more than X number of hours, you need to call us, blah, blah, blah. And so she was hyper in tune to that. And, you know, when we got home, do you still have the headache? Have you had enough water today? Do you? And I said, I'm not even going to take Tylenol because I want to make sure that this, right. Yeah. I don't want to mask the pain. And I barely had one eye open the next morning. How's your head? Yeah. Um, and fortunately it was in fact, just a headache. Right. Yeah. It changes your life. Obviously when you go through something like this and we can't help, but kind of be triggered back into that space every once in a while. And it just, it is what it is. And so I try not to judge myself when I find myself in that space and encourage other people not to and to really trust your body and know your body. And then all we can do is the best we can do. So Matt, on the Thrive podcast, we always like to give a thriving tip, which is a little bit of a little nugget of goodness that we like to kind of share with our audience. 
do you have anything that you, you have so many, actually, I should rephrase it. Can you give us just one thriving tip that, you know, would be a little bit of extra goodness that our listeners can carry with them through their day? So going back to Piano Man and Billy Joel, I've seen him in concert maybe 30 times. Because he does the New York. Um, yeah. Yeah. But since I was like 15 or 16, I've seen him wow. all the time. It never gets old. At the end of every single concert, he says the same thing to the audience. He says, good night, folks. Don't take any shit from anyone. Love it. Love it. So I, don't I love take that. any shit from anyone. So <laughs> do you not take any do you not take any shit from anyone? Uh, my wife Your wife is listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I usually deserve it <laughs> if I'm on you know, the end. Yeah. I I stopped um, I guess I took a very proactive approach with my medical team from the very first diagnosis, but I also had to learn how their how they best received communication from me. Mm-hmm. And so some of those doctors really wanted to understand data. And so if I went in and said, Hey, you know, doctor, look at, look at this. I've been tracking my whatever. And that way they didn't necessarily have to run a bunch of tests or, or go through the whole rigmarole to say, Oh yeah, we probably need to increase your thyroid medication. But that, that was my way of not taking shit. Like I, I don't want to let them control my, my right. outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that that's the end of, I guess the other thing is um, the real revolution happens when patients are in charge of their own outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And and it, I think that's so hard. For, it, it's probably going to get easier for the younger generations. But, you know, I know how my parents brought me to the doctor, right? You you went to the doctor. The doctor said X, you did Y. Yeah. And, and, and we said thank you and paid our $10 and got the sucker on the way out and, and <laughs> And, yeah. and then and then we moved on and and I can absolutely see it in the previous generation. You know, I have a friend who was just diagnosed with prostate cancer and didn't tell me. He knows my history. He knows what I've been through. Yeah. And he kept it to himself for a couple of months because he wasn't brought up in a generation that felt comfortable talking about their challenges, their illnesses. Uh, whereas I, I hope that my daughter's generation, she's 18 and a half. I, I hope that she's in that space where she makes decisions based on what the doctors present or based on what they don't present even. Uh, but she's making those decisions for herself. Yeah, I would agree that that is a definite trend in our community. Matthew, thank you. Objective decisions. Thank you so much for being here today. Your work is beautiful and literally touching and changing lives all over our planet. And um, we are just so blessed to have this conversation and to introduce our audience to you and to get to know you. It's been a true honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Good luck to you guys. Awesome. Well, I am Garth Callahan, the original Napkin Notes Dad. You can find out more about me and my journey at napkinnotesdad.com. I'm Dara, creator of crazyperfectlife.com and author of Crush Cancer, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thrive is created by Dara Kurtz of Crazy Perfect Life and Garth Callahan, the Napkin Notes Dad, with the hope that we help you develop motivation and inspiration to make your life remarkable. 
It would mean so much to us if you shared this with your friends and family and left us a review on iTunes. Remember, you deserve to thrive. Thrive Podcast is copyrighted by Dara and Garth.